0: This is Gil Mancer welcoming you to July's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers show on North Bay Public Media, KRC-BFM. Listeners have a great opportunity during the next hour to hear two conversations with award-winning advocates for radical forms of entrepreneurism. Find your voice, says Kiva co-founder Jessica Jackley. This means expressing something about you and what you believe. It is the first step towards doing valuable action in the world. While her micro-lending organization continues to change the face of poverty across the globe, this social entrepreneur with the Stanford MBA has also started ProFounder to help U.S. startups through the crowdfunding and is a venture partner in the Collaborative Fund. Listen carefully and learn from what your customers tell you, says Barefoot Wines co-founders Michael Houlihan and Barney Harvey when they talk with many of the same audiences as Jessica Jackley to share the practical yet universal lessons they learned while developing America's best-selling wine brand. I invite you to stay tuned and listen carefully to some innovative ways of thinking about being an entrepreneur in the 21st century. Loyal KRCB listeners may remember that it's been over two years since we had a chance to chat with Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan, the entrepreneurial couple who once knew nothing about wine except it came in red and white, but who are now internationally famous for their wine business, business savvy and co-writing the best-selling, entertaining, and very readable New York Times bestseller, The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand. Bonnie and Michael, I want to welcome you back to Word by Word.
1: We are delighted to be here, Kim. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: I want to talk to you how uh, how you guided the phenomenal success of your book. But first, let's check in what you are up to now. You brought in a new book called The Entrepreneurial Culture: 23 Ways to Engage and Empower Your People. Now, by your people, I assume you mean business types.
1: Yes, for the C-sweeters. <laughs>
0: C-sweeters.
1: What are the C-sweeters, Michael?
2: Well, uh that would be like the uh the department heads, uh the division heads, the the, the, the vice presidents. As Bonnie says, it's the whole alphabet, including the VP and even the P.
0: Okay, that CEO, CFO, C what? Thompson O's, O's. C C-O-O's. COOs, right? Yeah, Operations, all, right? Yeah, they're the C suite. C suite.
2: So these are the folks who are charged with really being the pentacle. Uh, and the broadcaster of company culture.
0: So who makes the culture of a company? I mean, some people inherit it because it was established, I don't know, 90 years ago or something and by some great, great person who did something entirely new and different. And other people uh, start fresh and, you know, in their garage or their, their, uh, their
1: laundry room, their laundry room right yes. Well if you're if you're fortunate enough to be starting a new business, then it's up to the owners, the founders, how that company culture is built. And they may not even know it at the time, mm-hmm. but their employees are following them. They they want to uh, be on the good side of the managers, the owners, and uh, so. However, it is that these founders or owners are treating other people, or making policies, or conducting business. That's the way that the employees will follow. Mm-hmm. Now, an, an older company um, tends to get set in their ways, Gil and. Uh, A lot of times it's very difficult to make change, and that's why we wrote the entrepreneurial culture, is to help those people realize the changes that can be made to make their employees more entrepreneurial. That's what we're hearing that they want in these corporations is for the staff to be more entrepreneurial. But what they found is they can't just give a direct order and say, okay, you guys just – Think like owners and be more entrepreneurial. Now that doesn't seem to work, but we've uh, become aware of 23 ways to make changes and uh, to uh, allow your entrepreneurs—not, I mean—to allow the entrepreneurial um, spirit in each employee to really come out and and grow.
0: Right. And part of that is going barefoot, I assume.
1: <laughs> well, part of it is fun, and being barefoot is a lot of fun, Gil. So, right. yes, right. absolutely.
0: So, Michael, you were telling me earlier that you had been to how many countries and how many universities and how many see, you know, corporate suites and Well, actually, uh,
2: since we saw you, Gil, uh, we've spoken at uh, over 40 schools that teach entrepreneurship uh, across the United States, uh, Canada in uh, europe and we've even had students in front of us from uh, from Southeast asia so um We're getting a real feel for how entrepreneurship is being taught. You know, this is a relatively new field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 10 years ago, there might have been a handful of schools that would give you a certification in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, Imagine, it's not a degree that you're going to show someone. It's more of this is how you become self-employed. So this is a whole different kind of a student who's studying to be an entrepreneur. And um, so what we've discovered is that for as many different schools as there are, there's as many different ways of looking at teaching this thing called entrepreneurship. And today, you know, we said a handful 10 years ago. Now we have at least 87 schools in the United States that will give you a certification or a degree, if you will, in entrepreneurship. So that's a real explosion in this field and and it's the wild west out there. Everybody has a different idea about how to do it.
0: So you're dealing with a combination of what do we call at least three different types of organizations. You've got the the old you know top down, right? Yes. Uh, you've got the one that's divided up into divisions or, or subgroups, each theoretically with a similar amount of of uh, influence. And then you have the one that's um, kind of grown like Topsy and doesn't know what it's doing and where it's going and doesn't have an overall view at all. Is that the three or are there more?
2: Well, there's as many for as many people who start businesses. <laughs> but unfortunately – We can't list them
0: all today. That's right.
2: What What happens with people is they, they – Usually, you know, they're an engineer or they're a chef or they do something that is essential and they say, you know, I'm going to start my own business doing this. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, they think that they can go out and hire people and train people. They think that they can motivate people. They think they can take care of the legal aspects of it. They think they can do the marketing and advertising. But what they really are is a terrific chef. Mm -hmm. So... Part of what we face as consultants and as speakers is trying to get folks who start their own businesses to realize that there's many different skills that are required to be successful in business and that you have to have, as the owner of the company, a sense of permission. You have to give people permission to do what they do best, and then, you know, that's how you delegate what you don't know. And then you do what you do best, and you can concentrate on it and be very effective in your business.
0: Well, as I remember in reading your, you know, your book about uh, setting up the Barefoot brand, one of the things you did right away is go and ask for advice from people who knew. That's how you figured out where to fit in your market. Am I remembering right? Absolutely. You needed, what was it, something in a pig and uh, (laughs) several other things like that?
1: We (laughs) asked uh, the number one wine buyer in the state of California what it was he wanted. And um, then we proceeded to give it to him. But his first response was, nobody had ever asked me that before. Can Mm -hmm. you believe the number one wine buyer? Nobody had asked what he wanted. They just came in there and tried to push whatever they were offering onto him. And we've found that by asking questions of everyone that touches your product mm-hmm. or uses your service in any way um, has certain needs that they want to express and that they want met. And in order to get them to perform in the ways that you rely on them to perform, you have to understand what it is they need and their form of communication. Mm-hmm. So we've asked a lot of questions of, of everyone, yes. Yes.
0: Yes. So that's one of your old tips, but it's still in the new book, I assume, too.
2: Oh, yeah. We're big on what your grandmother used to call the golden rule, and uh – I guess your mom used to say, put yourself in the other guy's shoes. Today we say, how would you like it? You know, how would you like it if you worked for yourself? How would you like it if you were selling something to yourself? How would you like the way you were treated? How about if you lent money to yourself? Would you like that? Mm-hmm. Um, how about if you bought a product from yourself? So these are all the relationships that you have in business. And the question is, how would you like it if you were on the other end of that deal? Right. And if you can't look yourself square in the face and say, I'd like it just the way I'm dishing it out, well, then you're going to have problems. And these problems are going to sour your company culture. They're going to hurt your your personnel. You're going to have turnover. They're going to take your customers and your corporate knowledge with them when they leave and go to work for your competition. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, the way that you you pay people, some people might grow up with a, a prejudice, you know, which says, oh, I'm going to see how little I can pay this person to get this job done. Or I'm going to look at this as a cost center. Whereas another person might say, you know, I really don't want to lose this person. They're too important to me. How much can I pay them? And not only that, but they're so important. How, what do I need to do? to make sure that they are loyal to my company. Mm-hmm. And, and some people might say, oh, you know, my employees, I'm going to put them on a strictly need-to-know basis. But another guy might say, you know, I'm never going to get any good suggestions from my own people if I don't tell them what the need is. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between need-to-know and know-the-need. So where do these decisions really come? They come from the top. These decisions are decisions that actually have to do with the way you were raised, things you heard when you were a kid. Your father might have said, you know, that salesperson out there, he's trying to take advantage of me. He's trying to rip me off. And so now today you own your own business and what are you doing? You're making the salesman wait two hours in the hall because you're punishing him for, you know, what, being being a, a smoothie or a slicky or trying to get something over on you. When the fact is that salesman knows what every one of your competition is doing, he also knows what his boss has got too much of in his warehouse, and he knows what it kind of terms his boss can give you. So if you treat your salespeople with respect, who are they going to come to when they got a deal? Right. They're going to come to you. So this is what we talk about. It's the old, like we say, the golden rule.
0: In your Barefoot Spirit book, you had a, a man who was working for another company and uh, came to you and said, I'm not really happy where I am. He's not treating me well. And as things progressed, and he ended up leaving that one, you immediately grabbed him up, and it was one of the best things you'd ever done because it puts you into markets that you never otherwise would have found. Right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And he was an excellent salesperson, but he wasn't being appreciated by right. his boss. Right. And he continued to be an excellent salesperson, but eventually the fact that he was basically disrespected – by um the management of his company caused him to leave mm-hmm. and give his excellent services to somebody else like us
0: like you <laughs> yeah now one of the things you mentioned and I thought of it as as you were talking about how things you learn from your parents and your you know your grandma and whatever else and you bring to it you have a younger entrepreneur certainly in the the area we live would you agree and, Absolutely. And they have a different – they're not certainly the World War II group. They're not the Beatles, you know, grow up age. They're younger than that. <laughs> and one of the things they're seeing on TV – and you you gave the example, for instance, of uh, a chef who opens up a restaurant. You see horrible chefs, you know, with their own TV shows and they're yelling and they're throwing things across the kitchen and they're – you know who I'm talking about, Mr. Ramsey, et cetera. <laughs> now – what does the young person think? Does they think do they think that's how you should act in the kitchen? And do you have to work Very with them yes. to get past that?
1: Yeah, yes. They young people think that w- whatever it is that they're witnessing is reality. Mm-hmm. And it's just the way everything is. For instance, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I thought it rains everywhere all the time.
0: It does. Yeah. In Portland. Oh, <laughs> in
1: Portland. Okay. So until you've had enough experience to see a lot of different ways of seeing it done, no, you, you don't know the right way to do it. You really have to experiment with that. And that's another reason why we wrote The Entrepreneurial Culture is, is it helps people no matter where they are in their business or what kind of position they're holding because – In reality, the entrepreneurial culture is really a good way to treat people, Mm -hmm. not just in business, but your own family, your friends, and the salesman that comes to your door or you meet in a store. It's how to treat people with respect and um, how to get along the best way with people.
0: So the other issues that are in the newspapers lately, there have been the people who uh, feel discriminated against because they're female or they're older or they're, you know, a certain ba- uh, racial background or something like that. Um, is it again at the top where the openness comes from? The, the oh, The welcoming yes. a- approach?
2: I th- I think that it really does. Um, you know, one thing, you, you mentioned the millennials. One thing that I love about the millennials is they're by all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they're past it. Yeah, they yeah. are way past that. Uh, So they don't have those kind of classic political prejudices. However, they do have prejudices about roles that people might play uh, in a business. Like, for instance, they might see the banker, you know, in a certain way Mm. uh, that might not be ultimately productive or they might see a salesperson in a certain way. Um, And. They have a tendency to uh, basically copy what their input is. They see a lot of stuff on TV, like you say, or the movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they get this idea that they can start a business without really having full respect for everybody's part in that business and what they do and why it's so critical to that business. And they tend to put too much energy and and uh, uh, credibility on their idea. So it's all about their idea. You know, this idea is great. Everybody who's seen it on the screen next to me loves it. All my friends on Facebook think that it's going to make millions of dollars. So then they go out and they get some guide or they, or they, or they round up some crowdfunding and they, they, or they get somebody to finance it. And they go out there and they actually try to execute it. And that's where they run into the wall. Because they find out, oh, my gosh, you know, there's a whole other thing going on out here like the distribution network mm-hmm. or, you know, like the way things are done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now they have to go back to the drawing board and by this time they're out of money. So we like to work with uh, with young entrepreneurs, especially um, millennials. That's who most of our, our friends are that we work with. Um, And the first thing we do is we try to show them the kinds of networking that's really required, the kind of work and the kind of relationships that are really required, no matter how good your idea is, just to get it there and keep it there. So that's always a big eye-opener, and uh, we have a lot of fans at the uh, millennial level, and we love them. We think they're great people. Okay, let's
0: let's use a specific example. You had never written a book before, and you knew you were going to put it on the market, right? You you get to pick what, I assume, had some input in the cover. You certainly made sure there was a barefoot silhouette in the sky. Indeed. But then, the day after we talked the first time, it goes boom, number two on the New York Times paperback business books. And stayed up there for weeks. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? I have the feeling it wasn't by magic.
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> Lots of we did work.
1: a lot of pre-sales, and um, we realized that that was important. Because we're really sales and marketing people Mm -hmm. primarily. As far as writing the book, we were very fortunate to have Rick Cushman, who's an excellent writer, and he understands wine, and he's got a wonderful, delightful personality and sense of humor. All those things were required in order to make this worthy of being a New York Times bestseller. So The Barefoot Spirit was really successful, not just because it's a grand story, but because of the way it was told by Rick Cushman. And because we did a lot of marketing, we did a lot of uh, pre-sell, we went to New York and we were interviewed on anybody that would have us. (laughs) And uh, we got the word out. We worked hard to make it happen. Thats it takes hard work to make things happen. That's what we discovered
0: well and one of the things I have to ask you here because you you have approached this as partners, you mm-hmm. know in many ways, but business partners and you both brought different skills and backgrounds to this, but there when you'd say, well, we, I don't really know about that. I've got to go talk to somebody about that, right and you'd listen carefully. Am I correct on yeah. so far? Yeah. Yes, yes. So, is it wise? you know the entrepreneur the traditional model is a single person who's got a grand idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that the best, or is it or should it be a combination of two or three people who have grand ideas and different skills?
2: Well, I think that um, anybody who has a good idea, who really wants to see it uh, into fruition has got to ask everybody who touches that good idea between their drawing board? And the ultimate customer, what they need, what they like, what they don't like about the products and services they're already getting. And then go back to the drawing board and really update it. In other words, don't finish designing your product until you've talked to your customer a lot. So that's number one. Number two, uh, I think you're right. I think that uh, it really does involve a network. There's a lot of people that you are going to be dependent upon uh, and their skill sets that you don't have. So don't try to do the whole thing yourself. Don't try to be a lone wolf. Surround yourself with a team mm-hmm. and 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 make sure that they all have an incentive. Uh, we like to say pay for performance. If you pay for performance – the non-producers can't afford to stay with you, and the producers can't afford to leave.
0: Mm-hmm. So of the – how many chapters? 23, I remember. Or no, I can't remember how many oh. chapters. Something. Now,
1: there's 23 Twenty-three ways, chapters. So there, okay. there should be 23 chapters. There
0: are, plus the intro and the resources. There in. you go. Um, which is the – of the ch- two chapters – I'm going to make this one for each of you. Which of the two um, – presentations, because you've done these as presentations individually. Is that right?
1: When we're speaking, we've spoken on all of these all subjects, them. and we've also written blogs. Right. On so
0: which has gotten the, the I don't know how you want to measure it, largest, most favorable, uh, most critical responses from people?
2: Well, there's two, really. One, one is... Um, okay. The two division company, mm-hmm. and the other one is to stand for something more important than your product.
0: Okay, let's do the two division company first.
2: Okay, okay. so um, most companies, uh, like I said earlier, you know that they, they have the CEO, and then you've got the vice president, junior vice president. You got the division chiefs, the department heads. You got the squads. You got the teams. You got all these groups, and then somewhere near the bottom is sales. And somewhere next to them is called customer service. And then you have the customer. So now how can a pyramid structure possibly say they put the customer on top when they put sales and customer service on the bottom and everything is top-down? Marketing tells sales what to do. Sales uh, uh, service, customer service is considered complaint resolution. Mm-hmm. Imagine the hoopers, complaint resolution. Well, at least
0: they changed the title because it used to be complaints, didn't it?
2: Oh, yes, it did. When they, We back in the 800 number days when those were new. So um, what, we, what we did is we turned that on its ear and we said, okay, we have two division company, customers on top, and then right under the customer comes sales and customer service. And then we have another division and it's called sales support. And sales support is everybody who's not in sales or customer service. That would be the CEO, the entire C-suite. That would be the marketing department, the production department, research and development, the accounting, the receptionist. Everybody you can think of, they're in sales support. And what that does, that mentality tells the people who are not in sales, look, this is where your paycheck comes from. It comes from the customer. And the person who talks to the customer every day is the salespeople and the customer service people. So it is to your advantage to know what they're saying about the customer. So we used to have meetings every quarter. We'd bring the salespeople and the customer service people in, and we basically put them on a stage, and the rest of the staff would sit there and listen to what they had to say about customer complaints, about customer service, about products, about what the competition was doing, about what works in the market and what doesn't. And so then people in the various different departments would hear this, and they would realize how their job really affected what those salespeople had to offer. Whether it be the product or the advertising materials and whatnot, so that's was the one. That's one of the subjects that's very popular, which is the two division company.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, how does the two division company? What I'm thinking of and immediately thought of the engineer suite. You know, the ones who in some companies feel that they're the the guiding force, shall we say. They came up with the new ideas and the new products, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But often they're coming from a culture that was uh, in some way aligned with, say, federal government contracts or other state contracts where they were given an RFP to respond to. In other words, they've already been given the problem. They've got to come up with a solution, right? Mm-hmm. So does that type of organization, we'll call it aerospace for want of a better word, uh, respond to this suggestion of that you've just outlined.
2: I, th- I think the big problem with those type of organizations is that they people are going to get paid whether or not the company makes a profit. You know, we used to say the cost prom- plus contracts. Exactly. Right. So you know, the the, the the problem is with entrepreneurs is if an entrepreneur doesn't make a sale, he's out of business. Right. Whereas the government doesn't really necessarily have to make a sale, I mean, you could say that you know we are all the customers of the government. But what are we going to do, short of revolution or a tax strike? Greece. You know, we're, we're going to have we're going, we're going to get the kind of services that they can provide given the fact that they're they're not being held as accountable as say a private industry is mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you're in private industry you're being really held super accountable by that customer and so what we used to do is we made sure that everybody's paycheck had some kind of a bonus in it that was based on sales growth and profitability those three things so everybody even the receptionist you know she was listening really closely to what the problems were in the field and coming up with suggestions and it really built team spirit
0: because she was interfacing with the customers and the people came in the door and called up
2: absolutely absolutely and uh Bonnie, would you like to talk about the other one that seems to be the most popular chapter?
1: Well, talking about having a product or service that uh, is more, that that is also um, supporting the community so that your company really stands for something more than just the product or service that you're offering. And by being a part of your community, what Barefoot Wines had done was to support nonprofits and community fundraisers around the markets where our product was available. And by doing that, you uh, are really talking to the end users. You're really talking to your customers. And you really are interfacing with the people that are going to be purchasing your product.
0: Or getting it as free as you're handing it out
1: in the booth, right? Well, yes. And if they like it, they're going to go look for it because you're supporting the same thing that they're supporting in their community. And uh, another way of really communicating with your customer is these same nonprofits and fundraisers in a small area. You can get their message to... The marketplace, which they're unable to do, we could put a tag, an informational piece on the neck of our bottle mm-hmm. that talks about this event coming up and encourage people to go there and support it. So that gets a lot more people involved in their nonprofit. So, And also it allows us to give more to the community, which gets their attention. They will give more to us and end up buying our product and um, that worked like crazy for Barefoot Wines. Mm-hmm. We never had paid advertising.
0: So when you started out and you got the ideas from the different people, one of the things was, you know, pick a name that the woman will be able to remember. Because a woman buys, which I hadn't been aware of, women buys the wine for the family.
1: The majority of sales are made in chain stores here in California, which mm-hmm. is where we'd started. Right. And uh, the... Majorities of shoppers are female, about thirty-seven years old, with two and a half kids. Right. So she was our target market.
0: So you've avoided the chateau like the plague because there are too many <laughs> chateaus out.
1: Right. We had to we had to stand out, shall we say?
2: Right.
0: We
1: were into toes, not chateaus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is word by word on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, and you are listening to a conversation about entrepreneurship with Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan, co-authors of the New York Times bestseller The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand. Shortly after this break, our next conversation is with Kiva founder Jessica Jackley about her new book, Clay, Water, Brick, finding inspirations from entrepreneurs who do the most with the least. So stay tuned to North Bay Public Media 91.1 FM as we rejoin our conversation with barefoot Bonnie Harvey and a slip-on shod Michael Houlihan. When you take on a cause, whoever you are, whatever, whatever company you are, uh you are gonna alienate some people because they don't support that cause. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's you right. you took on some causes which were which got publicity because of uh, you know when you started out.
2: Yeah, controversial causes. Controversial
0: causes. Yes. Now that's all water under the bridge and we're kind well, of Well they became
2: the, mainstream.
0: That's right.
1: Well, but, yeah. one thing to, to take into account, when we started, we didn't have anybody that was buying barefoot. Right. So if we were for a cause, anybody else that was for that cause was supporting us, well, they were new supporters. They weren't going to stop buying because they hadn't started. It
0: was a big tent. <laughs> you could welcome them in, right? Yes. Yes.
1: Another thing is is – There's more people involved in a cause that they support than there are people that are involved in a cause that they don't support. So just looking at the numbers, we were ahead of the game. Right, right. Okay? And it helped with our staff – feeling like they were part of a team and that they were they were representing a company that had more to offer than the products or services mm-hmm. that, that they had for sale. And that helped be, build team spirit. And that's essential for having a successful company, is having a good team that works well together. So just that in itself really helped.
2: But just having a good product at the right price with a cute
1: slogan and a catchy
2: phrase is not going to be uh, any guarantee of success. Most of the products that fail are good products Mm -hmm. and they fail because they don't understand the distribution system or they don't know how to engage the community. You have to remember we're always talking about customer service. So if you're producing a product, the ultimate service that you can give your customer is, and and in our case, our customer was a distributor who Mm -hmm. was selling to a grocery store. So what would be the ultimate service we could give that customer who is a grocery store owner? The answer is bringing customers into his grocery store to buy our product.
1: We now, can help you sell your product. Right. So that's what the best is. So you wanted a higher on the say. shelf
0: so they can see it easily, they don't have to bend down and get it. No,
1: well, bringing customers <laughs> in. Make, <laughs> making that's true. We started
2: on the bottom kill.
1: And uh, making it easy. But didn't
0: you send out your own uh, what did you call the barefooters? who went in to make yes. sure and try to get it up higher and, and, and Well, at, or at first the-
2: at first we were on the <laughs> bottom floor and uh, so we practiced this know the need thing. Right. So we told our whole staff, we got good news and bad news. The good news is we're in a major chain. The bad news is they put us on the floor. Right. And nobody will notice there. The
1: bottom shelf. And, is and so what and means. we
2: have to sell within 90 days or we're going to be discontinued. What are we going to do? And so somebody said, "What
1: Well, I guess we'll be picking up the foot traffic then. Oh, Oh. but that didn't that didn't make any (laughs) that didn't make any sales much better. But somebody else came up with the idea of creating these big purple feet Mm -hmm. that had sticky on them, and we called them sticky feet, and put them on the floor and walk people right up to the shelf where our product was, and then they're looking on the floor. They're already looking down, which people don't tend to do when they're shopping. Right. So already looking down and saying, Why am I here? And then we put a sign there It says barefoot with an arrow makes them laugh.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If you can get
1: people laughing, you've made the sale with 50% of them right there.
2: And that came from the receptionist. That's right. Uh-huh. Which we would have never unlocked that idea if we had treated her with a need to know basis. Right. So that's one of the lessons that gets back to culture. And then the other thing that happened was we started to get complaints on our 800 number from people who said they couldn't find Barefoot anymore because we finally got up to eye level. And they were looking <laughs> on the bottom.
0: <laughs> oh, well, you, this way you get two shelf spaces, right? Right. right. Now, I'm going to give you feedback from our listeners from our last show because there were two things that people mentioned more than once. Okay. First, uh, very, very important, and this is full disclosure. Is that Okay. Oh, yeah. They wanted to know if you were barefoot in the studio. I am now. Okay. See? There they are. There they are. I have to admit that I'm, I have Merrills and I don't know what you're wearing. You've got boots still?
2: No, not today. Today I'm wearing my... Uh, Something. <laughs> they're the, the, I'm wearing my...
0: Cordovan slip-ons. Yeah.
2: My Metafeso air-cooled. Okay. Italian there we go. Now we, Now
0: everyone knows that. And the other one. Apparently, I said that your first two wines that you sold, one was uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, right? That's correct. And the other was Cabernet Blanc, which is apparently not correct because it was... That
1: is correct. That's not correct, (laughs) Gil.
0: But I got got people writing into me about it, telling me all about Cabernet Blanc and how it really wasn't grown in California at all. It's a, you know, it's a Holland wine that's grown in Germany and all this kind of information. I had no idea. So I want you to know that people listen. And the feedback is, so tell us, what was your first? It was Cabernet Sauvignon and...
1: Sauvignon Blanc.
0: Sauvignon Blanc. See? Yes. I knew there was a Blanc in there.
1: Well, you were right about that part. Yeah.
0: Okay. So it was my mistake and I apologize for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now I'm going to do this segue again because we're in in the European Union sphere, and you're doing a presentation on entrepreneurship, is there a different mindset in young Europe? I'm talking millennial-aged Europe.
1: We were talking mindset. to professors of entrepreneurship from universities and schools throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what we had found, and this really surprised me, is that um, the whole world looks from – what I heard, the whole world looks to the U.S. to see how we are treating entrepreneurs. And we treat entrepreneurs, and we are more appreciative of entrepreneurs here in the United States than any place else in the world. There's places where being an entrepreneur will be looked upon by friends and family as, oh, you poor fool, you can't get a job.
0: Right, so you have to do your own. Or
1: if you make a mistake and your business fails, and as we know, We make lots of mistakes, and lots of the things we do have failed, but we continue, and that's okay. It's Mm -hmm. what an entrepreneur does. That's not accepted in other countries. You have this big cloud of being a failure over your head for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life. Um, So entrepreneurs don't get the encouragement elsewhere that they get here. Interesting. I found it very interesting. I I was surprised to learn that.
0: Well, the the idea what – you know, I have younger – you know, kids who were in their thirties now, but uh, somehow they identifying I still think of them as kids. Yes. So, uh, and and one of the things I I was surprised to learn is that their assumption is that every five years they're going to have something different they're doing, either by choice or not choice. But that's so different than our you know our parents and grandparents. They would get a job and stay with that company till the end. And, of course, there were certain requirements on both sides. And as we've seen through the years, those are sometimes follow through, and other, more unfortunately, times they don't.
2: Well, I think that has to do with their immediate history. You know, millennials really started off in the business world with this huge recession, Mm -hmm. you know, a worldwide recession. Right. And the ones that went to business school were being taught – to be plugged right into middle management jobs at the corporation. Well, during the, during the recession, those jobs just evaporated. Right. So many millennials who had the jobs lost their jobs. Many of the millennials who studied for those positions found out that they weren't there. And many of the millennials came home to roost and they're boomerang kids. But what they, what they learned was that you can't bank on security from a large corporation because they saw major corporations fail Mm -hmm. during those years Mm -hmm. of the recession. And so their immediate experience is don't trust them. You know, you're going to have to do something on your own. You're going to have to have a skill set that, you know, maybe you got to change it every five years. you got a company you're working for, or maybe you have to move to another company. So they don't really view it that way. And, um, you know, you can't blame them. Uh, You know, the the corporations have not done a good job of providing for any kind of long-term security uh, in their experience. So um, what we see is we see that the explosion of interest in entrepreneurship and in entrepreneurial education is caused by the millennials. Mm -hmm. And when you sit there and you look out in these classes, these are all young people. And many of them have business degrees and they're going back to learn how to be an entrepreneur because they know there's no job for them out there. And and they're very interesting people. They are hanging on your every word. They want to know how to save money, how to reduce their need for capital, what kind of relationships they need to, to be successful. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting situation for us. We, we enjoy it.
0: I can see that, yeah, when you talk about it. So one of the things you, love, I'm going to have one of these questions. This is for you, Bunny. Okay. When you are out amongst the the people who are listening to your every word, what mm-hmm. surprises you?
1: What had surprised me was a couple things. One thing is that they told us that other speakers had never talked about the things that we talked about, which are basically guiding principles for success. Mm-hmm. They told us that a lot of other speakers would only speak of their success stories and not their failures. Mm. And our failures, our mistakes, were building blocks towards our success, and they're essential. And we always talk to uh, students and any business groups, organizations that we're talking to about making mistakes and how it's okay. Mm-hmm. because it's a part of learning.
0: And that's what you, you need to learn from that. That's yeah. how we got to where we are. Right. Is, yeah.
1: And the students would ask a question that I really love, which is, what do you do and how do you prepare for the unexpected?
0: Ah, that's a good one.
1: Isn't that a yes. good one? Yes. I th- I think that's a very wise question to ask. And do you
0: have a wise answer?
1: I do. <laughs> I do. What you do is you have certain standards and principles that you believe in, that you rely on. Uh When something comes from from left field, you rely on your core values to answer the question. And as we've talked about earlier today, a big part of that is the golden rule, is put yourself in the other guy's shoes. So it's not just about you or me. It's about the other guy and how do they feel. So by opening your mind and your heart, if you will – to having the compassion and empathy for all people that you're doing business with, it makes it easier to address the unexpected. And, and knowing that you have principles, guiding principles that you can fall back on to help you make those tough decisions.
0: Wonderful. Well, we have been spending some time with Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey or Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan, whichever book you happen to pick up. One, uh, The first book that they talked about a couple of years ago is called The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand. And their new book is called The Entrepreneurial Culture, 23 Ways to Engage and Empower Your People. Thank you so very much for spending this time with us.
1: Well, once again, we've had a great time here with you. Good. Thanks, Thank Bill. you, Gil.
0: Thank you. For the next Word by Word segment, we'll have a phone conversation with Jessica Jackley, the tireless advocate for financial inclusion, a sharing economy, and social justice. Jessica, on behalf of our KRCB listeners, I'd like to welcome you to Word by Word.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Early on in your book, Clay, Water, Brick, Finding Inspiration from Entrepreneurs Who Do the Most with the Least, you take readers back to your Sunday school classroom where the teacher is sharing how Jesus loved the poor and wanted everyone else to love them too. You describe how you followed along in your illustrated children's version of the Good News Bible. So it's no surprise that you follow Jesus' teaching style and use parables to tell your story. As I mentioned, I've selected several parables that jumped off the pages, but before we discuss my choices, I'd like to ask you which of the people's stories you share with readers have provided the greatest impact on how you perceive entrepreneurship?
3: Well, that's a very nice question to start with. And, you know, it's funny I hadn't made that, that connection, but I guess you're correct. I certainly have been influenced by parables, and so I I've, apparently that was a natural way for me to communicate, too. Right. So I really think, I mean, the book is really named for an entrepreneur that is near and dear to my heart because, Patrick, the brickmaker who inspired, you know, the title Clay, Water, Brick, mm-hmm. was a person who made something out of almost nothing. He found opportunity right in the ground beneath his feet. And that, to me, is just nothing short of miraculous. He he really embodied the kind of definition that I love so much of entrepreneurship, Um my favorite academic definition is Howard Stevenson's. And he says, entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity without regard to resources currently controlled. And if you break that down, I mean, it's really about the pursuit. It's about movement forward. It's about taking steps again and again toward the vision that you have for a better future without regard to resources, without regard to things that have gone wrong. You know, you, you don't ignore the barriers, but you figure out a way over, around, and through. And I think Patrick really embodied that.
0: Now what Patrick basically did for our listeners is to take the clay that was underneath his feet and make it into a product. Right?
3: That's absolutely what he did. Right. He dug into the earth and mixed clay with water to form brick.
0: So he grew where he was uh, or where he was planted in a real
3: way. He he very much did he very much did and he did things that I think you know usually we talk about you know, rolling your sleeves up, getting your hands dirty in a in a cliched way, not in a literal way, but he certainly did that quite literally, and I find I just find that to be so inspiring. Right, right.
0: Let me talk to you a little bit about your uh, history as a child when you grew up uh, in a family which where uh, doing good deeds, going hell, going out and helping other communities and people who needed it, was obviously uh, very prized and highly honored. Because you have a series of activities with what I guess we could generically call charity work. And you tried this at different levels and you learned from it. The one that that jumps out one of the things was what I will call the cleft pallet scam. Do you want to tell us about that?
3: Yeah, you know, I think the messaging that I heard growing up from well-intentioned nonprofits was a little bit confusing, um, to say the least. On one hand, I felt like a lot of the organizations would want to tell me Bad stories, um, stories that would make me feel enough to be able to get out there and, you know, whip up my wallet and give, or sign up for more volunteer hours, or whatever the need was. Mm-hmm. And that's not a—it's not a bad thing to want to get people involved. But I think the way, the mechanism, um, the journey that they took me on to get that done, was in the end damaging because it—it it made the poor, this very otherized set of people in the world, um, it distanced them, it alienated me from them and them from me and just made me feel far and in fact sometimes nervous and scared about who they were and who i was supposed to be in the world the the little um i don't i don't know if scam is the right way to talk about it for me but the, <laughs> okay
0: the, all right well you got the uh the letter that after you'd sent in a yes. donation and it no, said send in another donation and we'll never send you another letter
3: right absolutely that's exactly what, that's exactly what it was and it was um it's funny because I think it's just so confusing. It's such a mixed message. On one hand, I was being told as a donor, "You're so important. We need you. We can't do this without you." Um, and this is such a, this is such great work. And, and I guess I was in some ways hearing, you know, and it's really so great. You should you should love being involved. Like what a privilege, what an honor. You can be this powerful force for change in the world. But of course, they wouldn't say, and we'll never bother you again unless. They also sort of in an underlying way felt like they were being annoying or like, you know, we understand deep down you really don't like hearing from us because this is, this is so, this is annoying and this is a burden. So it's just a strange um, mixed bag, a strange mixed message. And I found that just to be a really memorable moment for me where I realized, huh, <laughs> um, there's a dynamic here that's not quite ideal between myself and certainly the organizations that wanted me to participate and give, but also between myself and the individuals that I so long to serve and that those nonprofits with great intention were trying to serve too. There was a lot that got sort of um, lost in translation and mixed up because of the strategy of those organizations.
0: And then there are a couple other instances where, for what I call the whitewash uh, slacker, the man who was sitting on the porch when you and the group of, quote, mostly small frame teenage girls arrived to uh, whitewash a building.
3: That's right, that's right. I mean, the the oddest against truth is I don't know who that person was. I never took the time to find out or to really interact, um, which which was a a mistake, but it was what happened. And so there was, to set the scene a little bit for folks who are are listening and haven't read this section yet, um, I showed up as a high school kid uh, for a volunteer sort of Saturday with my friends, we drove into an area of the city where I grew up, Pittsburgh, and there was a, a house that needed whitewashing. Um, we went and we were, it was hot and humid and we we're sweating and sort of struggling under the weight of the ladder and the paint cans and all that stuff. It was difficult. And off to the side, we noticed there was another person there, this very strong looking young man who was sitting around listening to, um, I think he was listening to music and obviously was not participating in helping well. Now, and it made me just ask the question, who's, you know, am I, am I being foolish here is who really needs the help? That's right. <laughs> um, right. And what does that look like? Why, you know, when is it appropriate? In fact, when is it maybe a, 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 something that should be mandatory that you're working alongside folk to better their own lives? So anyway, it was just, there were lots of confusing moments, certainly a theme for me, growing right. uh, trying to figure out my role in the world and what I could do to alleviate poverty um, what the right ways to do that were. Again, I don't know who that gentleman was. He could have been the homeowner. He could have been, uh, you know, maybe his parents or other relatives owned the home. He could just have been a nice neighbor who said, look, I will spend my Saturday helping direct these this team of volunteers so they can do good work for you. Who right. the heck knows? Right. I don't know. But it made me question things. It made me question why I was spending the time doing that when um, other people who could have helped a lot as well weren't <laughs> weren't doing that at the moment. Right.
0: You're involved in Habitat for Humanity as well, and they, of course, their idea is to have the, the homemaker be involved in the process as much as possible. So there's That's a sweat right. equity involved.
3: That's absolutely right. You even know the terminology they use. Yes. Yes. I actually, was with I was um, participating in a build, uh, several different builds over the last few weeks mm-hmm. for various reasons, and it was really awesome to see how people not only agree to the sweat equity, but really end up falling in love with it and saying, you know, I met one woman who actually came back again and again and again um, to continue to do their sweat equity, not just on their own home but on so many other people's homes because they loved the way that it built community, loved the way that it it made them feel to get to contribute and participate. So it's a great part of the um, strategy that they have.
0: Okay. Well, we may come back to a couple other examples, but let's talk about some of the people you write about in your book. Do you want to talk about Catherine's fishing trips or Blessing's Shop in the Middle of the Street or Innocent Sugar for the Tea? Which one first?
3: Ooh, I love all of them. Um, that's <laughs> okay. That's to ask me. All right. Um, well, let's start
0: I, with, I think, the I one think so, that was most fascinating.
3: What do you think? Do you have an opinion? I would to, think yeah, Innocent
0: Sugar to... for the Tea because that ended up and went in a direction I did not expect.
3: Yes, 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 yes. That was my gut as well. So... Blessing is a woman, um, I'm sorry, Constance, gosh, wait, am I getting this all right? Innocent. innocent. Innocent, Innocent. So You've given her yes.
0: the name Innocent, yes. That's right, that's
3: right, that's right, that's right. Innocent. So she was a woman, um, you know, I'd met several people actually with that name, it was, it was not uncommon, and I think it's a beautiful one, but Innocent was uh, a woman who I met, and she was the first person that I encountered, but not the last, who surprised me with the, one of the answers that they had to a question that I asked them about how their business had changed their life, how it had allowed them to prosper and grow um, after they had gotten this little bit of capital and sort of been able to boost their business activities. At the time, I was interviewing folks who had received a $100 grant Mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Anyway, I was over and over again, after a few weeks in the field, hearing some consistent answers like... Oh, I, you know, thanks to the profits from my growing business, I've been able to send my daughters to school, or Mm -hmm. thanks to my business, um, proceeds I've been able to afford to have three meals a day, or to buy mosquito nets, or to afford medicine when somebody, somebody in my family fell ill. Really wonderful things, all great things, but I'd been hearing some consistency in those answers, and Innocent said, oh, well, you know, the first thing I did was to buy sugar so I could put sugar in my tea, and I admit that when I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, why would you do that? There's so many other things you should have done first. And I I didn't say those things out loud. But at that, you know, even in those very early days, I thought I'm becoming an expert in this and I know what would be helpful. And that's not the most helpful thing she could have done for herself. And what, of course, I learned was that You know, it's very important and it was a humbling moment, but a a very good moment for me because I was, as I asked her more about why she did that, I, you know, I learned to ask why as opposed to speak my own opinion on the matter at the time. And she told me that actually having sugar was not just about her and this daily sweetness that was so nice for her to have in her life, but also it was about being able to offer that sugar to guests. And be able, being able to be um, a, host, a good hostess and uh, invite people into her home so she could talk with them, meet them, build those friendships, it made her more confident, allowed her to see herself in a different way outside of her home, and that eventually bled into her business. It, it affected the success of her business because she was this more confident person. So she explained how it was actually kind of a big deal. and had A lot of other um, effects that I would have not seen or guessed uh, in a long time. So, I was grateful that I learned that lesson with her to not assume that I knew what was best in the lives of the people that I wanted to help, but to defer to them as much as I could and ask, let them lead in terms of making those changes. Well, I
0: thought it was interesting because you'd written the questions way before you went into the field. So, mm-hmm. you, you had, a, I, I had, guess, a preconceived notion of what things you were looking for. Sort of I had,
3: like, and that was based on, you know, I wrote them in partnership with the organization. For which it was working, this mm-hmm. wonderful um, Bay Area nonprofit called Village Enterprise, and they had it. You know, they'd already been um, up and running for decades, and had a had some ideas about what was most valuable to folks. And again, a lot of times there were answers that did show up that I did anticipate, um, and that that I was I was correct about that because of what they had taught me, because of what Village Enterprise had taught me, and how they prepared me. But it was always fun and interesting, and certainly very educational for me when I got some surprises like
0: that. One thing I want to make sure we cover is later on in your book, towards the end, actually page 182, you talk about going to a conference filled with people in casual attire, and uh, you felt like you should be dressed up there. But uh, you realize that the only darker faces in the room were from the cardboard cutouts of the people who were
2: yeah.
0: were there to perhaps receive, you know, the... Uh, the fruits of these people's uh, donations
3: that's correct i was um i was at a gathering and you know i think there are a lot of different ways a lot of different attempts um people have not malicious or negative at all really positive hopeful again well-intentioned attempts to bring the reality of this situation <laughs> experienced by a lot of folks um that particular nonprofit serve they, they they were trying to figure out a way to bring that experience that reality To these generous donors and one way that you know you can't always take everybody out into the field and have special trips to introduce them to the people who benefit from their generosity so they had tried to bring those individuals to the donors and they did so by as you said having these sort of life-size cardboard cutouts around the room and um, they had props kind of around as well Uh, they would they would show for example a cardboard cutout of a, a chicken farmer holding maybe one of the chickens and Next to that, they had a table with some plastic eggs in it, (laughs) in in like a, you know, an old egg carton. There were people who were standing sort of in, um, you could tell they were standing sort of on farmland in in the dirt, and maybe were standing next to potted plants, right, to sort of make the scene. And it it was a sweet effort, but for me, it made me feel so strange and far away from the actual reality um, and I think it just, what that story, I, I hope, can allow folks to think about, allow readers to sort of think more deeply on is how difficult it is to really bridge cultures sometimes and to bridge that those gaps and how, thankfully, we do have technology that I think is helping and making it easier, but there's really no replacement for spending real-time, live, face-to-face with the folks that you want to understand and serve, and that's a really important piece.
0: Right. Well, Jessica Jackley author of Clay, Water, Brick. I want to thank you and leave the, our li- readers and listeners with a quote that from your book that says, Entrepreneurship isn't about what you have, but about what you do. And that's exactly you. what you've done with your life. So thank you for joining us today.
3: It's such a pleasure. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to North Bay Public Media's locally produced word-by-word conversations with writers show on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's show featured local wine entrepreneurs Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan chatting about the New York Times bestseller, The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand, and their new book, Entrepreneurial Culture, 23 Ways to Engage and Empower Your People. Our other guest has been Kiva founder Jessica Jackley with her new book, Clay, Water, Brick, Finding Inspiration from Entrepreneurs Who Do the Most with the Least. The studio engineer for today's broadcast is Jesse Van Cushen. Our station director is Sean Knight, with ABLE assistance from Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We'd like to invite you to join us for the next Word-by-Word broadcast, starting at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, August 9th. Until then, please consider Jessica Jackley's words. Please choose the courageous path. As well as Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan's Dictate, Never waste a perfectly good mistake.